October is Hispanic Heritage Month, and more and more Americans are Cuban Americans. It's a complicated history. Why is it important for all of us to learn about it? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. The majority of Americans in the 21st century have but one national identity. Yet, do we ever really leave our ancestral identities? That's questionable. When many of the refugees at our southern border, in calling for their rights to be recognized and accepted, waved flags of Mexico or Guatemala, it confused a lot of North Americans. Well, if they want to be fully American, why can't they just let that go? And then there's the violent immigrant wave of the 19-teens and 20s, which isn't so far gone, which demanded that there be no so-called hyphenated Americans. There was a demand that one is either 100% American or one is suspect. A lot of people got hurt in that ugly time and in this time as well. Today we hear of the so-called immigrant crisis, masses of people taking the painful step of leaving their homes, fleeing repressive governments and gang violence in a desperate search for asylum and freedom here in the United States. If they want to leave it behind, why can't they just leave it behind? Let go of the culture they fled. Well, the popularity of Ancestry.com and other such websites reveals that probably most of us are curious and want to know where we came from, what mysterious unknown values of old we continue to have and still carry with us, what shapes our identity. One of the largest and most identifiable groups of what used to be derisively called hyphenated Americans are, of course, Cuban Americans. If they escaped Castro's socialist revolution, why would any Cuban American choose to dig into his or her past and write a book about it? What's the value in that? Well, we're about to find out. With us today on Keeping Democracy Alive is award-winning author Lisandro Perez, professor in the Department of Latin American and Latinx Studies at John Jay College, the City of University of New York. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for inviting me. In your new book, you tell Cuba's story through the lens of the single family, your own. The, the, the title of the book is The House on G Street, A Cuban Family Saga, in which uh, our guest, Lisandro Perez, shares the story of his ancestors within the larger story of the forces that shaped the Cuban colonial society, the rise and fall of the Cuban Republic, and the advent of the Cuban Revolution. As we talk about this, we'll touch on the question of why Cuba still sparks discussion and debate here in the United States some 60 years after Castro's revolution. Why is it a mystery? The book, The House on G Street, has been called a compelling blend of memoir and history, which tells a multi-generational story that is both distinctively Cuban and widely relatable to immigrant families, as well as relevant to everyone with a stake in the survival of democracy. And I hope that's dear you, dear listener. Um, tell us, please, about the genesis of this book, Lisandro, and about the title, The House on G Street. What, and what kind of research did it involve? Well, it's a book that I think I've been writing for, or at least researching, all my life. Um, since I was fairly young, I had a great deal of interest in family stories. I was a pretty well-behaved child. Uh, I was a good listener, and so adults spoke to me. And uh, I 
gathered all these family anecdotes um, of my ancestors um, uh, who lived in Cuba really since the beginning of the 19th century and the 1820s. And um, I completed in 2018 a book about the Cuban community in New York in the 19th century. I told a lot of stories about the families that lived in New York in in the 19th century, the Cuban families that lived in New York uh, in the 19th century. Uh, and, um, I, I found out I, there was a fairly good storyteller. You know, I was trained as a sociologist and generally think of social scientists as storytellers, but I was able to tell those stories very compellingly, I think. And then I thought, why don't I tell the story of my own family? But because I am a historian and a social scientist, uh, I decided I just couldn't tell the family stories. I had to place them in the context, the historical context in which, the lives of my ancestors took place. So this is really a book uh, of Cuban history with a family story inside of it, or maybe it's a family story with Cuban history inside of it, one of the two. But but what I've tried to do is really write something that that people would find uh, informative about Cuba and at the same time leave a legacy for my descendants uh, about all the research that I have done because in addition to those family stories, I have done quite a bit of research that sort of fills in those stories. And, uh, and I'm able to really present a pretty complete picture, both of my ancestors and of the period in which they lived. And it is good to know because it's, it's a mystery. It's interesting how many, you know, there are a few hundred countries in the world. And yet here in North America, Cuba remains mysterious somehow and without a knowledge of history. How we got here and where we are, again, there's a lot of mystery about Cuba still in the U.S., even though Castro's revolution was so long ago. Tell us, please, what we don't know about the history of Spanish rule and how the end of it affected the power relations between the U.S. and Cuba. Well, uh, Cuba was one of the, of course, uh, longest-running colonies of the Spanish. That is, um, most of the uh, Spanish colonies in the New World uh, gained their independence in the 1820s, uh, but not Cuba. It wasn't until 1898 that they managed to get rid of uh, Spanish colonial rule, and that's only because the U.S. entered the war that the Cubans had had, uh, started in 1895, the Spanish-American War, of course. Mm Mm-hmm. And the U.S. took over uh, uh, Cuba, Puerto Rico, and the Philippines, which are the three remaining colonies of the Spanish. And it, that's that's about 400 years, really, of just about 400 years of of, uh, uh, of colonial rule, and uh, that really shaped uh, Cuba mm. a great deal. Uh, Cuba was regarded as the most faithful of all the colonies. Uh, the Cuban struggle for independence was extremely long. And uh, many Cubans, of course, joined in the fight for independence, including my great-grandfather on my mother's side, uh, whose story is also told in this book. He's an important part of the story because, of course, he he left an important historical record. Not only was he a colonel in the Cuban army, but then later he served both the U.S. uh, administration of Cuba and later the Cuban government until his untimely death, really, at the age of 48 Mm -hmm. in 1918. So the colonial, one of the things that, that uh, I deal with quite a bit in the book is this uh, colonial legacy of, uh, of uh, Spain in Cuba. 
uh, and how in many ways the conflict between Cubans between Cubans and the Spanish was a very intimate conflict because, for example, my grandmother's family on my father's side had both Spaniards and, and Cubans in it, and, um, and they had differing opinions about the future of Cuba, and that's within the single family. Yeah. So it was a very, a very, um, a very close colonial relationship, which then, of course, became a close relationship with the United States when the U.S. Uh, assumes control of Cuba in 1899. And technically, it wasn't a colony of the United States. However, you, you call it a that, that the new Republic of Cuba had a compromised sovereignty. And I wonder what, what that phrase means and how it was felt by the people of Cuba during that period of its history of the compromised sovereignty with the United States. Well, the, the U.S., uh, because of the, uh, the result of the Spanish-American War, the Spanish surrendered to the U.S. It also surrendered to the Cubans, and the U.S. takes over Cuba and governs it with a military uh, government uh, from 1899 until 1902. In 1902, the U.S. hands over Cuba to a Cuban government. But that government had a constitution uh, that was uh, drafted with certain provisions in it, and those provisions that were inserted in it were known as the Platt Amendment. The Platt Amendment was uh, passed by the U.S. Congress. It was a bill sponsored by a Connecticut senator by the name of uh, Orville Platt. And it stipulated certain controls on the new Cuban government. For example, the new Cuban government could not incur a foreign debt, for example. It could not allow any colonization, of course, by any other powers, etc. But the most important provision was that the U.S. reserved the right to intervene in Cuba should life or property be threatened. And that essentially made the U.S. the ultimate arbiter, if you will, the mm. ultimate authority, really, in the Cuban political system. And many Cuban political parties played off of that. If they lost an election, well, they threatened life and property, and then the U.S. could come in, yeah. intervene, nullify the election, and call a new election. And so it, that's what was called interventionist politics. It really had a tremendous impact on the Cuban political system, not to mention the fact that Cuba really didn't have full sovereignty. There was this arbitra there was this sort of overseer role uh, that the U.S. maintained. Uh, yeah, mm, that's uh, not exactly an equal uh, arrangement there. I, I must say to have the uh, U.S. in charge and uh, deciding what's what to do there, and uh, uh, but that, that's as you say a compromised sovereignty. And in terms of the picture that many North Americans may have of Cuba before the revolution. A personal story here. My mother once showed me a silky flowered blouse she got in Havana. I believe it was uh, embroidered with the word Havana on there, probably in the 40s or 50s. And that kind of goes along with the lasting image of Cuba and Havana as a Wild West-type playground for Americans as displayed in the second Godfather movie, Gambling, prostitution, crime, just wide open. Was that picture accurate? And, and if so, how did the Cuban people like it? And Fulgencio Batista, what was, what was his relationship with, with that kind of a picture? Well, the, because, of, because essentially the U.S., through the Platt Amendment, guaranteed 
the stability, the stability of Cuba, at least ultimately the stability of Cuba. That is, that it was safe for investments. And not only that, because the war for independence really wiped out a lot of Cuban capital. Oh, wow. Uh, U.S. U.S. capital went in very strongly into Cuba. It was a, a, an island that largely was, to some extent, undeveloped, especially the eastern part. Mm. Uh, many uh, U.S. companies invested in sugar mills, very huge sugar mills in uh, eastern Cuba. My, and again, that that intersects with the story of my great-grandfather because he became an administrator uh, of one of the largest sugar mills, American-owned sugar mills in uh, in eastern Cuba. Uh, and one of the things I constantly talk about in the book is this is this relationship of the U.S. and how Cubans related to it. Uh, so in the case of my great-grandfather, not only did he work for the government of the military government from 19, uh, 1899 to 1902, mm. but then he worked for the Cuban Republic and and he and and eventually he was hired as this administrator of an American-owned uh, sugar mill. So, so the influence of the U.S. was very pervasive. Most of the investments were licit, uh, but some some were illicit. And Fulgencio Batista, especially uh, when he came to power in uh, even before then, uh, he was in power in the 1930s and and really mm. in the early 40s. And then in the 50s, he really opened it up to a great deal of investment, uh, including in casinos and uh, with organized crime. I think that's been exaggerated a little bit, uh, but it was certainly there. And I think Cubans, uh, that was part of what led to the revolution, I think. I think many Cubans, particularly uh, upper middle class Cubans, thought of themselves as progressives, that Cuba, you know, uh, should be a progressive country. And yet here they were ruled by a military ruler with a monocultural economy with all these uh you know uh entertainment venues for americans and in an impoverished poverty mm. and cubans thought of themselves as better than that and i think that led in many ways to the to the revolution of 1959 in many ways pride yeah feeling pride <laughs> in, in your country i can I, one can uh, only imagine and to have it just as a playground for the uh you know, aggressive, uh, superior Americans. Uh, it, you can see why people might want to change that. And your story is it's a family story, uh, and you've done a bunch of research into it, not just your memories, but it's a snapshot of a key period in Cuban history. Why is it important that that be told? What history of a world that no longer exists might otherwise be lost? And why is it important that we get that? Well, it was certainly important to me and to leave it to my ancestors because, as you well say, that is a lost world. Uh, my family, um, on my father's side, my grandfather made quite a bit of money. He rose from being an orphan boy, destined to, for pro poverty, and he built a really substantial uh, tobacco exporting business uh, in which he sold uh, his tobacco to the U.S., and he built a very prominent business. On my On my mother's side, uh, because of you know her grandfather's participation in the war, uh, they were also very recognized as a kind of a uh, you know uh, family that was somewhere in the upper levels of Cuban society. And so I, I talk about that world that they lived and how they shaped Cuban society, how that also society in many ways sowed the seeds of its own destruction, so as to understand a little bit what it is that leads to the revolution, but also because it is a chronicle of a lost world. 
that is a that is precisely the world that was swept uh, um, uh, that was swept away by the revolution. And people who live in Cuba now, who say are less than sixty years old, have no memory of that mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. And uh, the only thing they know is that they live among these these uh, houses and and um, and public buildings that were built in another era when, again, there was a great deal more wealth and prosperity than there is now. And that it was built by this social class that essentially no longer exists. And if it exists, it exists in Miami. Hmm. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking with Lissandro Perez, professor in the Department of Latin American and Latinx Studies at John Jay College, about his new book, In the House on G Street, a Cuban family saga. And many of us were hopeful when Batista was overthrown that it might be a more democratic, small-D country of Cuba, that the dictatorship was gone and that there might be more of a a lasting, thriving democracy on the island. And from the pictures we get, and I don't know how accurate it is, uh, and a lot of it is myth, no doubt, I wonder about what happened to the idea of a lasting, thriving democracy. Was was it just rub up against the personality of uh, Castro and and his uh, uh, his team? Well, you know, revolutions bring about a tremendous amount of change, and uh, to be sure, many of the ideals that many people thought that this uh, revolution would accomplish were, were not met. Uh, and uh, it, to be sh- certainly, this government that took uh, charge in 1959, led by Fidel Castro, has done some reforms that have improved, at least initially, a great deal of you know, the social uh, justice agenda that had always been postponed during the revolution, uh. particularly the inequalities between town and country, uh, inequalities in education, in wealth. Uh, to some extent, also racial, uh, uh-huh. uh, you know, opportunities and so forth. But again, it, it was a, a government that failed in many ways to to fulfill dreams of a democracy. Uh, so that it, it has a one party system. Uh, there are elections, but you, as long as the candidates are all members of the same party, and uh, and so part of what happened is that the tremendous support that the revolution had, including. The support of my father and many members of my family, eventually in the 60s, in the early 60s, in 1960, 61, uh, that revolution became more radicalized. And it went beyond what even many progressive Cubans were willing to support. Uh-huh. And when that happened, emigration happened. So my family leaves Cuba in uh, uh, October of 1960, uh, which is almost two years into the, to the, uh, the revolution. And they leave because they they believe that that you know the government is going to get into your lives. It's going to sort of you know dictate things like the education of your children. One of the big uh, uh, reasons that many of that social class left is when the government nationalized private schools, and that sent the message, particularly in the Cold War era, that well you know. Uh, uh, what was going to happen is that children were going to be sent to the Soviet Union to be indoctrinated and mm. so forth. Mm. So there were a lot of fears about where this revolution was going. And that led that social class that included my parents, my mm-hmm. family, to leave Cuba at that time. Understandably, 
Uh, yeah, and I'm, I'm old enough to remember uh, a lot of the uh, the various exoduses that there have been. And after the exodus in the early 60s, which your relatives were part of, many refugees were granted special legal status by the U.S. government, status that remains elusive to people fleeing repressive governments nowadays, but since Cuba was, uh, you know, to the left, uh, it was it was welcome. It was politically advantageous for American uh, uh, leaders. Uh, these privileges of of special legal status began to be slowly removed in the 2010s by then President Barack Obama. Before him, the Carter administration also tried to reconcile with Cuba. Carter was beaten by Ronald Reagan, who I believe remains quite quite popular indeed with Cubans American Cuban Americans and I suspect the majority of Cuban Americans consider themselves Republicans I keep hearing that on the news these days as you say if they were to favor the political party that has done the most to help them as immigrants that is the party that has helped them in facilitating the migration to and their adjustment to this country they would be Democrats uh, so please explain why there's, the, the, the Republicans uh, seem to be uh, in the majority in uh, among Cuban Americans, especially in Florida. Well, uh, the in, uh, what this shows is that uh, Cubans traditionally, and certainly when they started coming in the '60s, consider themselves primarily exiles, not immigrants. That is uh-huh. the distinction we the distinction we might make there is that exiles generally put priority in their agenda on affairs of the homeland. Uh-huh. Whereas immigrants uh, try as much as possible you know, to um, favor those measures that ease their adjustment and further their situation in the U.S., education, employment, and so forth. Right? But Cubans have traditionally defined themselves as exiles, and therefore they judge the political parties that way. So, for example... Uh, for for those uh, Cuban Cuban Americans who hold that position of of prioritizing the homeland, Jimmy Carter was a disaster yeah. because Jimmy Carter essentially tried and he did actually to uh, improve relations with Cuba. Along comes Ronald Reagan with this hard line towards communism, an individual, probably the first Republican candidate who was really looked like he was very ideologically driven because that wasn't Nixon, right? Uh, Nixon was a Republican, but he didn't seem that ideologically driven. But Ronald Reagan was, and he was this anti-communist, yeah. right? Yep. Um, and, and so it, in 1980, uh, a lot of Cubans uh, uh, become citizens, register to vote, and they register Republicans so they can vote for Ronald Reagan. And so the Republican Party, uh, with its line, sort of its, its hard line towards communism or its rhetoric of hard line towards communism, has been very uh, popular among Cuban Americans. Uh, but again, most of their um, advances that have been made by Cuban Americans in terms of their position in the U.S. and their migration have been made by Democrats. Yeah. You know, it was uh, John Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson that allowed in the first wave, and not only that, provided them with assistance. Jimmy Carter allowed the Maria boat lift. Oh, yeah. Right, uh, Bill Clinton uh, was uh, started the the entire what was called the Rafter crisis when he allowed the Rafters to come in, and that, by the way, since nineteen ninety three ninety four, there's been a steady stream of Cubans coming into the U.S. Uh, and so, so it's it's exactly the paradox you're you're talking about. That is that uh, 
that that the Cubans view themselves, Cuban Americans, as much as ex, more exiles than immigrants, and therefore they favor what they believe is going to be the party they think that is going to you know help them recover the homeland. Interesting sep- uh, difference between uh, exiles and, and immigrants. That's it, that's a, a very important distinction, I, th- I think, and you really uh, laid that out. And uh, of course, there's a, there's a lot of history. Uh, in Cuba that we don't know about. And, you know, we don't know. We, You and I just a few minutes ago went over some of the... Uh, Cuba became a republic, meaning of the people, uh, and but it, but it was under the aegis of the United States that always seemed to know better. And a lot of us may, if we know a little bit about Cuban history, we perhaps heard the name Jose Marti, but we know very little about him. But he is still quite known in Cuba. Uh, what was the goal of of Marti and the leaders of the 1902 Declaration of the Cuban Republic? What was their hope and intent? And did, how did that declaration uh, eventually lead to economic and political power falling into the hands of the U.S. government and the U.S. corporations? And I, I guess the Platt Amendment played a role in that. Yes, so Marti, to talk a little bit about Marti, yes, uh, because he is really the towering figure of Cuban history. Um, Marti, and I, I have a, a couple of chapters devoted to him in my previous book, Sugar Cigars of Revolution, The Making of Cuban New York, because Marti carried out a great deal of his activities in New York. Um, he arrived in New York in 1880 when he was uh, just 29 years old. And he lived the following 15 years in, in New York until he leaves for Cuba yeah. to lead to lead the uh, the uh, uprising that he organized. So he was an organizer. He was a poet. He was a writer. He was the one who laid the basis, really, for the Cuban nation. Because for Martí, it wasn't just about defeating the Spanish. It was about creating a nation. Mm. So, so, uh, so Martí founded a political party in New York. He gathered the support. He created a whole structure so that Cuban exiles will contribute their money to the cause. And he also founded a newspaper. So he founded this civilian movement that was intended to raise the money to take the war to Cuba and to organize an army to do so. That's why he's regarded as the father, really, of, of, the, of the Cuban nation. And, and his ideals of social justice, of sovereignty, of equality, of inclusiveness— all of those, right, are presumably what should have driven the Cuban nation uh, when it becomes independent or at least given a government in 1902. Of course, Martí was not there. Martí is killed on a battlefield in Cuba just three months after arriving in 1895. Mm. And in many ways, one of the things he feared the most was, which he could see coming from his perch in New York, was this sort of expansionism of the United States. And in many ways, the entry of the U.S. into the war with Spain and the subsequent, you know, takeover of Cuba by the U.S. was in many ways Martí's worst nightmare. Mm. Uh, and and uh, and therefore, the many ways, the dream of social justice and sovereignty and so forth was not realized. So throughout the Cuban Republic from 1902 to 1958, there was this ideal that the nation was supposed to aspire to, but that fell significantly short of that. Well, at least he became a martyr, and we know how you know important martyrs are to history. They can become greater than they were in real life. I mean, let's 
John Kennedy right. was was uh, died a little too quickly, to put it mildly, but and 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 his uh, legacy uh, lives on. And I I wonder. I assume. Well, I shouldn't assume. I'll ask you. Marty is still taught in Cuban schools. Yes, because you see, um, uh, he is very much so, and so so is so is he in in exile, because both sides of the divide, if you will, in Cuba now, that is, those mm. who favor the Cuban government and might be in Cuba and those who are opposed to the Cuban government and are outside of, and, and or are outside of Cuba, uh, both claim to be, of course, trustees or of that agenda that Mati put out. Uh, so those opposed to the Castro government said, no, the Castro government deform that agenda. And those who favor the Castro government say, no, they really put into effect what Marti wanted. But, but nobody, nobody, um, you know, puts aside Marti as a, on the contrary, they embrace him. This is one of the things about Cuba, which is that although you have this very divided nation, right, between diaspora and island and so mm. forth, the national symbols, the national heroes and so forth remain the same. Uh-huh. Uh, this was one of, I don't know if you remember the case of Elian Gonzalez, right? Oh, yes. Uh, the, the, Cuban, the Cuban boy who uh, was found in the waters of Florida, brought in and so forth. You, there were demonstrations, very large demonstrations in Miami for the child to stay. And there were very large demonstrations in Cuba for the child to be returned, where both of those demonstrations would sing the same anthem, wave the same flag. And I'm mm. sure that, that many Americans found that confusing. Aren't these guys on opposite sides? How come they have the same symbols? Well, because because everyone everyone sort of claims to be uh, claims to be a trustee or, or to to follow those precepts of the 19th century that Martí and others set out for the Cuban nation. So Martí, yes, continues. Has, in fact, uh, uh, you know, it was the, the airport is named after him. Uh-huh. Uh, there are so many statues and busts of Marti. By the way, there is a huge statue of him in Central Park in New York as well huh. that was put in there in the in, in the uh, early '60s uh, at uh, at the at the uh, head of Sixth uh, Avenue in Central Park. And recently, uh, the Cuban uh, the, uh, the the Cubans made a copy of that statue, and and they they there's now an identical statue in in uh, in Cuba. So yes, but he is very much uh, uh, as still that's the hero, as the hero of both sides. Heroes are so hard to find, but uh, once you do that, uh, you can see why uh, it, it was in New York as well, because it's a it's an inspiration to uh, to be fighting for uh, democracy and justice, and you know, educating people. And one of the things that the world knows about Cuba, the, the global South. My understanding is that uh, medical improvement uh, happened tremendously. Uh, it was much medicine is much more available after the 1959 revolution, and a lot of Cuban doctors went to Africa and were recognized as, as some of the the best, and they, they welcome uh, Cuban doctors there. So I, I wonder about, about you know the Cuban medical system, the educational system. I mean, there's a lot we don't know. Well, there's been a few studies of the Cuban medical system. I, I, I don't think there's any question that that the revolution uh, prioritized the distribution uh, that is a sort of equality in healthcare and in education. And to be sure, they they did that. Uh, in other words, 
Um, they establish uh, a lot of clinics around the country in rural areas, especially. Remember, the real divide, I think, uh, in pre-revolutionary Cuba was between, you know, especially Havana and the rest of the country, and especially uh-huh. between cities and the country. Uh, so that, that before there weren't a lot of, you know, there were a very limited number of rural schools. They were understaffed. They were underfinanced. Um, same thing with medical attention. Uh, you could get world-class medical attention in Havana, right? Uh, especially, again, if you could pay for it, if you had insurance for it and so forth. But in the country, that would have been more difficult. So they have, I think there's been, they've done this more equitable distribution. They have universalized uh, education. There are no mm-hmm. private schools in Cuba uh, to speak of. And uh, again, uh, people of all uh, occupations and races and so forth go and to the same schools as 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 others as as everyone else. So uh, there's been that. Now the problem with the Cuban government has been one of resources, and it affects both the education, but especially the health area. So that, uh, for example, uh, I remember one time when I was visiting Cuba that my aunt fell sick. We went to her local hospital. Um, she was very well treated there in the sense that they had the staff, you know, she didn't have to pay a cent. I mean, she didn't, right. she didn't have to fill out any forms. She just got a bracelet, uh, that, uh, admitted her to the hospital and, and everything was free. But what happened is, well, they didn't have the medication that uh-huh. she needed. They didn't have, so it's, it's a system that exists structurally equal, mm. but it's a system that is impoverished. And to some extent, that's true also of education, right? Hmm. So, and, and so, you know, uh, for example, my elderly aunts, when they were still alive, they got free medical care, preventive care, her, their vaccines, whatever they needed. But they were scared to death of needing, for example, an operation or needing a, needing a, very, a very rare medication. Can't tell you the number of times that I traveled to Cuba that people would come to my house and leave medications here, some some mm. urgent ones for people in Cuba. Mm. So that's that you know that's the sort of the two sides, if you will, of the medical and the and the educational system. Well, certainly uh, sp- spreading it out amongst uh, the people. I understand uh, literacy was not full back before Castro, but but now it is and. Uh, there's the embar- the embargo, and again, if you just tuned in, dear listener, Bert Cohen here. The show is keeping democracy alive. We're speaking about uh, Cuban history from uh, someone who knows. He's got a new book out uh, in the house on G Street: A Cuban Family Saga. Uh, it's his story, not just his, but uh, his family story, going back for generations. The embargo. What? the heck is with the embargo why why does that need to be i mean hasn't that outlived its usefulness and you know in terms of getting important medical supplies to cuba i can't help but think that some of that has to do with the embargo what's the story with that well there are there are some exceptions to the embargo uh, that allow for some food for certainly for food and medicine but overall uh, if you're talking about there isn't really free trade Mm. and of course americans um uh, Americans cannot travel to Cuba for right. the purpose of tourism. Some can travel if they fall under the exemption categories. By exemption categories, we mean if you have family in Cuba or if you are, for example, a religious organization or if you are an academic who studies Cuba. So people like that can travel, but 
not for the purposes of tourism. So Americans actually cannot travel to Cuba, which deprives, of course, Cuba yes. of a tremendous, uh, tremendous source of foreign exchange. So the embargo it doesn't explain all of Cuba's hardships, uh, or perhaps not even most of them, but it certainly it certainly accounts for uh, a great adds adds on to the uh, resource starved uh, situation in Cuba, and and it goes back, of course, to 1962. Uh, when uh, when uh, Kennedy decided to impose the embargo on Cuba as a kind of a punishment for the confiscation of uh, American properties, and since then the uh, the the, the the reason or the rationale for the embargo has shifted. Hmm. Uh, the U.S. really has not had the will nor the disposition to lift it uh, to lift that embargo. Uh, in part because now it's codified, it has to be an act of Congress. Uh, so it's not just an executive action, it's become an act of Congress. So, so it has to, it requires Congress to lift it. And there isn't any political really will uh, to do that. Uh, and again, every time that Cuba does something the U.S. does not like, then that's giving you another reason why the embargo needs to be sustained. So although it was originally because they confiscated U.S. properties, it then became, uh, as a rash, the rationale became, human rights abuses in Cuba. Right. And then it became, you know, it was uh, the entry of Cuba into the war in Africa, for example. Uh, the support of Cuba for guerrilla movements. That is, the, the rationale for the embargo has shifted. But <laughs> the, the fact is, the U.S. simply is, has, been, has not had the political will uh, to lift it. And I can imagine the people of Cuba, what, what better way to unite the country than to have a big, powerful, heavily militarized country breathing down your neck and, and embargoing you. I, I, I've wondered, I've wondered for a long time uh, if, this, if the embargo really just solidified Castro's support longer than it may have had been naturally. Well, a siege mentality has uh, has right. always kind of helped helped the Cuban government out politically. Sure. Uh, but in in addition to that, I think you know, uh, look at what happened uh, when Obama, uh, President Obama, opened up a bit with Cuba, and he actually went to Cuba. Um, I think that that if if you are trying to keep control of a country like the Cuban Communist Party is trying to, um, what you what you isolation helps you. Uh -huh. It's when it's when it's when things open up that 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 you're playing in a field that you're not used to and that may be threatening for you. Let's just give an example. Uh, when Obama traveled to Cuba, uh, he held a joint press conference with the Cuban president, Raul Castro. Right. Mm -hmm. I believe that was the first time that that Raul Castro ever faced the foreign press in an open question and answer situation. Mm. And he was clearly not comfortable uh, with that. But yet that happened, right? Uh, because Obama went to Cuba and tried these initiatives. I always believe that, that openness is better. But it's not just, you know, it's not just uh, for the purposes of, you know, the re uh, of, of making the regime uncomfortable. Openness is just what really the Cuban people deserve. I mean, one of the things that Cubans have, historically had a love affair with the U.S. They love American culture. They, you know, Hollywood. I mean, sure. I remember when I was growing up in Cuba, it's what happens in so many countries that oh, yeah. there's a love for American culture. I have run into 
older Cubans who can tell you who won the 1944 World Series and by what score, you know? <laughs> I mean, they, they, uh, baseball, you know, Hollywood, all of these things that came from the U.S., the Cuban South. But there's at the same time this notion that why don't they, you know, why do they keep this sort of hostile, you know, right. measure against us? You know, why, why does Washington uh, seem to, uh, you know, impose this for, for shifting reasons? So anytime, you know, the, the goalposts, the goal as they say, yeah. keep shifting right. uh, as, a, as a way for Cuba to sort of gain uh, better relations with the U.S. And I think in large measure what it is is that, you know, Cuba and the U.S. were so close. And this is what my book talks about. Cuba and the U.S. were so close up until 1959 that it's sort of when your, uh, you know, prodigal son leaves. Or 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 joins the other camp yeah, or something. Uh-huh. It's harder to forgive, right? Uh, it's harder to forgive people who we feel have betrayed us, who have been close to us, as opposed to people who are not so close to us. Oh, that is a good good perspective that uh, we wouldn't get otherwise. Um, and you mentioned loving American culture. I think that I think the world loves American culture, American militarism and imperialism. Not so much. That's just my opinion. When North Americans think of images of Cuba, the first two are probably Castro, and the second image is. 1950s cars. The preservation and appreciation of those old beauties is really impressive, especially for a car guy like me. You say Cuba in many ways remains unchanged since the 1950s. Aside from those 50s cars, in what way? Well, the, I, think, I think on the surface it remains unchanged. Anyone who travels to Cuba is still going to see the buildings that were built before 1959 and even in the 19th century. And that's because, you know, there isn't the, you know, construction and, and real estate development and housing and things like that are not on the private, you know, investing market. It depends on the government to essentially build new housing, build new buildings. And those things cost a lot. Right. And so what happens is that what would normally happen in any city, any city like particularly a dense city like New York, which constantly you say, oh, in that, in that corner, instead of that building, there used to be that building. And before that, there used to be that building, right? Where, where you know, the bulldozer comes in and builds a new building. No. Uh, that largely hasn't happened in Havana. So you still have the Art Deco buildings, the, old, the, 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 uh-huh. the, the 19th century buildings, that some of them are in ruins, some of them are well-kept, but you have the feeling that on the surface it still looks like another time. And then, of course, you've got all these 1950s American cars rolling in the street. So on the surface, it looks as if things have not changed. Of course, in reality, its institutions uh, have thoroughly changed. Political institutions, the government, the um, uh, you know uh, economic institutions, everything in Cuba has changed since 1959. In fact, so many things have changed that you know, if you walked up to a, to a Cuban on the street in, say, 1957-58, right, 1956, in the late 50s, before the revolution, and you told them, let me tell you what's going to happen in this country in the next 15, 20 years, okay? There's going to be a break in diplomatic relations with the United States. It's going to be an enemy of the United States. Hmm. It's going to be allied with the Soviet Union. Cuba's going to send troops to Africa, Okay, there's going to be shortages of this and that. There's, I mean, it would be like nobody would believe that, and yet that's exactly what happened. Well, history has a way of pulling a lot of big surprises on us. There's always something that we don't expect in history. That's one thing I've discovered. And these days, 
a lot of the right wing in in America doesn't want history to be taught. They they repress it and and they want to just keep alive a myth that doesn't have much to do with reality. But there's a lot of value in the way you grew up in a binational world. What were the benefits and contradictions of growing up in a binational world where American influence could be felt on your everyday life? And why is why do you think kids, you know, being binational can be a very good and positive thing? Well, one Cuban novelist um, uh, called the, the 1950s in, in Havana specifically, the 1950s in Havana, those American years. And I mm-hmm. certainly grew up in those American years. My uh, Part of what the benefit to me of writing this book was to understand my childhood my childhood a bit better. Uh, I had three ancestors, my great-grandfather on my mother's side, my grandfather on my mother's side, and my father. All three of those were educated in the United States. They did their high schools in the U.S. In the case of my mother's side, they went to military schools in the Hudson Valley, and my father went to a uh, uh, private uh, uh, school in Long Island. Uh, And so to learn English, because, again, my grandfather and and many of my ancestors wanted to prepare themselves and their children for this new world in which the U.S. was playing this really predominant role uh, in in Cuban history and the Cuban economy. And so that uh, that explains a great deal why when I, you know, I'm ready to go to school in kindergarten, they put me in an American school. Because by the 1940s and 50s, with that presence of the U.S. in Cuba, there were a fairly large number of, um, and I'm talking about schools that were certified in the U.S. to offer a high school degree mm-hmm. with certified teachers from the U.S. So I went to a bilingual school, a bicultural school. It was called Lafayette School. There were others like it. This was one of the principal ones. And I was there to learn English and learn everything else. Our mornings were in English, and that's where we learned math and spelling and of course, you know, history, we had a thick, in sixth grade, we had a very thick U.S. history textbook, mm. right? And that, again, uh, was very pro, uh, sure. many ways, pro-expansionism and so forth. Uh, and then in the afternoons, us Cuban kids, because the, the school was about half Cuban, half American. The American kids were those who were the children of the diplomats or primarily those who whose parents were there because they had been sent there by their corporate offices in New York or wherever as subsidiary companies in Cuba. So so there were a large number of American kids. Us Cuban kids would go in the afternoon to classes in Spanish, Cuban history, Cuban geography, and there we had a very different sort of treatment of history. Right. So I grew up in this sort of binational world. I, 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 I thrived on it. I uh-huh. thought it was really interesting to 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 hear this this tale of of, of the this country that I knew had such an inf- had had such an influence on my family's life, the U.S., and its history, but at the same time, learning from a Cuban teacher about Cuban history and Cuban geography. I thought it was a very rich education, frankly, and, and it was a thoroughly bilingual education, and I know that's sometimes controversial in this country, the notion of teaching in a foreign language and, or in the language of a, foreign, uh, of a foreign country, but in Lafayette, it was the most normal thing. Uh, of course, as you know, it's, you know, we had spelling in English. We didn't have spelling in Spanish because, of course, the Spanish is a phonetic language, so you don't need to memorize 
how to spell words. You just oh, need to sound them off. Oh, I, I didn't know that. And to, it's so much more valuable to, to just be, uh, you know, isolated and just to learn about America. Boy, you know, kids, our kids need to learn about other countries and to respect other countries as our equal. It has to, it, I, I'm a firm believer in that. And uh, I, it does seem that, you know, you talk about uh, the uh, pre-Castro world, uh, and there was more of a class uh, situation there. And Americans seem to love to imagine the lost world of images of the rich, carefree, old world, royalty, uh, the upper classes presented in such shows as Downton Abbey, you know, glorious living. And I wonder how widespread and deeply in Cuba there might be a perhaps today a wistful longing for that stratified Cuba pre-Castro by Cuban Americans. Well, I think that the part of the, there is one of the reasons I wrote this book is precisely to, to sort of tell the story of that lost world. And I think there is a lot of interest in Cuba uh-huh. in finding out more about it because it was, it was, it's almost uh, unbelievable to, to many Cubans today that really the U S had this tremendous influence there and that people lived very differently in Cuba. That is not all people, but that there were families that had an existence uh, that was very different from the austerity that they know now. Right. So, for example, I'm, I've joined a number of face group, group uh, groups that originate in Cuba, in which one of them, for example, is, 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 has to do with really the architecture. And and there are this is a group that originates in Cuba, and they they're trying to compile uh, stories about these houses that surround them, that are now perhaps government offices, mm. or they may be schools, but they used to be inhabited by the people who built them and by families, right? The residential homes, and so you you see frequently somebody puts a picture of a particular home built maybe in the nineteen. 19- 30s, 1940s, and he asked the question, does anybody know the history of this house? Uh, you know, uh-huh. uh, because, because they're just certainly curious about, about this other world. Uh, uh-huh. and, 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 I, and I think that's one of the, the things that, that I wanted to document. And, and yes, the, the book has uh, necessarily a kind of, if you will, elite perspective. I'm telling it from the perspective of you know, my family, mm-hmm. Who wasn't wasn't like the richest family, and you know, even among the richest families in Cuba, but you know, we're somewhere in the upper sectors of Cuban society, uh, and I, I keep that sort of elite perspective because that is precisely the the world that's been swept away. So I, I make no apologies for yeah. the fact that there's a certain elitist focus to the book, and Just, and I think that story sometimes is of interest. You know, we are fascinated by Downton Abbey. You know. Yeah, yeah, we, uh, we we like to picture uh, people living gloriously. So this this house on G Street, and that is the title of the book. That that's, I guess, became in your mind the reference point for everything that that had been and would never be again. And I can imagine people wanting to find out who used to live in that house. What was, you know, what's the legacy there? In what ways did that house on G Street, as you say, become Cuba for you? Yes, that is the house. That house was built in 1929 in, by my father's father, who uh, I think I mentioned before was an orphan boy from central Cuba who seemed destined to poverty, but he 
really worked very hard. He had very good entrepreneurial and business uh, instincts. And eventually he built a very large uh, business exporting tobacco from central Cuba, tobacco leaves, not cigars. He didn't manufacture cigars. He exported yeah, just tobacco leaves leaf uh-huh. to the U.S. And he became the sole, uh, the sole um, provi- uh, just, uh, you know, a purveyor of right. tobacco leaves for the General Cigar Company, Whoa. which at the time was one of the largest cigar companies, and certainly in the United States. And so, so he made quite a bit of money. And so he built this house on the corner of G Street and 15th in a residential area of Havana in 1929. And he built a big house because he had 10 children, of which, of which my father was the oldest male and the fourth of the children. Uh, he had uh, eventually, um, my grandfather had five, and my grandmother had five boys and five girls. So he, he built this life. It, it's a house with very little pretension. That is, uh, uh-huh. many of the houses in that neighborhood, you know, have very ornate uh-huh. kinds of columns and details. This was a very functional sort of house because this was a man who'd been raised in rural Cuba, and he didn't uh, particularly appreciate many of the affectations of the upper class in Havana. Uh, and but he did have to move to Havana because uh, more and more uh, his business was exporting to the U.S. And he oversaw his business from from sure. the warehouse in Havana. Uh, so he built that house, and every Sunday, I didn't, I never lived there, of course. When my father married my mother, they set up their own household in a different place, in a more modest place, an apartment. Uh, and I, that's where I lived. But every Sunday, you can imagine, with the nine siblings that my father had, there were all kinds of uncles and cousins and aunts and so forth. Everyone would meet at the house on G Street on Sundays. Nice. And, uh, and, uh, and those, that's, those are the things that I remember really anchored me to Cuba. That is those, those Sundays there where, uh, you know, I played with all these cousins and, uh, you know, all the aunts and uncles doting over us. And, and that to me became sort of the place that anchored my memories in Cuba. So with time, when we left in uh, 1960, it kind of became Cuba for me. Uh huh. So, if for those people who may not have any known connections with Cuba uh, and just uh, you know living in the currently United States, uh, why is it why is it important that your story, which is a snapshot of a key period in Cuban history, why is it important that that history be told? I think, in large measure, because it's a history that that hasn't been told, and and it's a belongs to a period of time in which uh, most of Cuban history has not really dealt with how people lived during that time. Uh, Cuban history has largely talked about the Cuban Republic, that is, again, uh-huh. the, uh, how Cuban, uh, the Cuban government during most of the 20th century, the first half of the 20th century at least, as this place where, yes, it was, you know, um, um, uh, there was a dictatorship and, and the U.S. had all this influence and whatever, but how did people on the ground, you have to say, in other words, how uh-huh. did people like my family, you know, how did they deal with that world, which in many ways was very unique, which had a lot of political instability, which had all this foreign influence. How did they deal with that? So I relate the story of my family to that context. The other thing that a reader might take from this is the ability 
and the benefit of doing research on your own family yeah, because true. um because um our death, I inherited a great deal of family stories, but the book isn't is couldn't be just me telling family stories. I need to tell the larger context of that. Besides, I need to research those family stories because sometimes those family stories are not entirely accurate. You know, there's <laughs> a tending, tendency to idealize and memories fail, right? Yes. But right now with the internet, with things like Ancestry, with the search aids that there are to look up books, to look up all kinds of things, to look up documents, it is, it is possible to write a, a really, really interesting history, I think, of anyone's family. And I could not have written this book 20 years ago uh, in the sense that, that I, I took those family stories and I filled them in with a great deal of research. It is a work of nonfiction. This is not a uh -huh. historical novel. It is a work of nonfiction. I don't make stuff up. Uh, but I, I, what I do is I, 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 I add the context to the family stories. Uh -huh. And, uh, and, and I, in so doing, I better understand how individuals in my family and possibly many Cubans negotiated what was a very, very compelling and very tumultuous history. And that history for all of us only makes us richer. And as somebody said, some wise person said, the past isn't even the past. It's still here. We carry it with us all the time. The book is called In the House on G Street, A Cuban Family Saga. Thank you, Lissandra Perez. Very interesting. I hope more people will uh, check out uh, the history of this mysterious island. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for inviting me here. If you enjoyed that discussion, don't miss a single show. Subscribe. It's all free. And if you find the information valuable, your friends probably do too. Please ask them to also subscribe. It's on Apple, Spotify, Progressive Radio Network, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and of course, the website, keepingdemocracyalive.com. Thanks very much.